What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets, the best Bitcoin podcast. No, um, the show that keeps you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. And it seems like this keeping you ahead of the curve in China and macro and everything seems to be somewhat playing out the way I have been talking about for a long while. Now, this show is a little non-standard. I know that this feed has been stagnant for a long time. I have a couple other episodes that are in the editing process. Hopefully those will get out uh, sometime soon. So stay subscribed to this feed uh, because there is more content coming. But uh, this was this episode was going to be going on to FedWatch. That's my other podcast. You just search for FedWatch Bitcoin in any podcast app and you can find it. Um, but due to some constraints with Bitcoin Magazine that I have uh, decided to put this out on my feed first because it is kind of a time-sensitive topic with this Evergrande and uh, the credit problems over there in China. Now, I talk uh, quite a few times here about sharing my screen. Uh, that is because I recorded it with video. That's how we do the FedWatch uh, podcast. And uh, due to constraints on my side for editing here, I'm just doing it audio. So you can find all the associated images over on bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E233. So this is episode two. And I'll, you know, um, have all the graphs that I talk about and stuff like that. And while you guys are over there at Bitcoin and Markets, sign up for the free weekly newsletter. It comes out every Friday called the Bitcoin Fundamentals Report. Also, we have paid content or member content uh, with technical analysis and fundamental analysis that comes out on the website as well. So sign up for that. That also, not only do you get the member content, but you are supporting. All the other content that I make, this podcast, FedWatch, the free newsletter, everything. So I uh, appreciate you guys and see you over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. All right, guys, thanks for staying subscribed. Stay tuned. More is coming. Enjoy this early cut of my Evergrande podcast, and we'll check you next time. What is up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to FedWatch. A little bit different episode today. Christian is traveling for work, and I I was like, I need to do a, an episode because there's so much going on with Evergrande. I want to talk about it again, and Bitcoin, of course. So uh, this this fits right into what FedWatch does. So yes, speaking of Evergrande, it's starting to make its way into mainstream financial press. We have been talking about it since episode 60 on August 11th. I'm going to share this screen. So on episode 60, uh, at minute 28, if you want, guys want to go and listen to that, I give all of my factors at that time why I think that in the next three months, at that time in, in August, China was going to see a recession. And six weeks later, it looks like there's a recession coming. On that episode, I also used this tweet thread by Last Bear Standing, where he is talking about Evergrande. Um, he or she tweeted this on July 20th. So Evergrande was out there in the very niche, niche space of macro, but uh, nobody really was talking about, especially in Bitcoin. We were the first podcast in Bitcoin to talk about it. And we were the first macro podcast or 
Sound Money, Gold Bug, Bitcoin podcast to talk about a specific time frame of within three months. And six weeks later, here we are. So what's going on with Evergrande? Now, remember, Evergrande is a, has $300 billion in bad debt, and it's slowly maturing. <laughs> this Thursday is the big day where a lot of it matures, and they're going to have to have a major default event, which will people are expecting. And that's one reason why the, the price of their bonds has gone down so much. I mean, you can buy them at like 20 cents on the dollar now. Uh, that is a significant discount. So they are not the largest real estate company by any means. They are the second largest. And maybe they were the largest back in 2019, but since they've started having problems, uh, they have, now they're pretty much tied for second. And then their country garden, which is uh, about 10% larger. And we're talking roughly, let's see, they have, Evergrande has 700 billion yuan in revenue in 2020. So that equates to a little bit over a hundred billion dollars in revenue. So that's the size we're talking about. And they have 300 billion in bad debt. Now, if they are forced to liquidate, right? If they're forced to liquidate all these apartments, all this land that they have, all these assets and the price dives, what's going to happen to these other large development companies? Well, their assets are going to go down in value and they're going to become insolvent as well. And you know that's how the contagion spreads. Um, and then who owns that debt? Who owns the debt that Evergrande is not going to pay? Well, is it Western pension funds? Is it Western hedge funds? Uh, you know, uh, where, where, who, who has this debt? Who is going to also get liquidated when this debt goes down uh, or turns worthless, basically? So that's how the contagion spreads throughout uh, the economy. Okay, what else do we got here? I wanted to just show the rise in debt to GDP because one reason why I could call this next three months or this uh, being bearish on China where everyone else seemed to be bullish on China, like the Thucydides trap and other things which we'll get into here in a little bit. The reason why I was able to be bearish and it looks like it's going to turn out that way is because of this China debt problem. Now, this chart is from Deutsche Bank that I'm sharing here, showing about 275% debt to GDP, which puts it over Japan's official number, uh, which was the most in, is supposed to be the most indebted, but it looks like China is the most indebted here. And I don't buy this central government number. It's very small, like about 10% percent of GDP, which I don't think that's the case. So if you added on their government debt on top of this, it puts it over 300%, up to 350%. I've seen uh, people talking about the debt to GDP for China. And this is just, I mean, they went from 100% of GDP to 350% uh, of GDP, uh, debt to GDP in 20 years. So this is a, the largest, quickest debt bubble that the world has ever seen. And that is the context in which I can say, okay, well, they're having all these issues. <laughs> there's a slowdown. There's bad supply chains. Um, there is now real estate problems in China. So things are coming to a head very, very quickly. And I, I of course, then my geopolitical um, 
position or opinion on top of that is that China will shrink over the next few decades while the U.S. continues to grow. So that is that is the context in which I made this call. All right. Let me stop sharing for a second. So much easier with uh, with the host. I'm trying to do this all in one one uh, shot, one recording. So we'll see if I trip over my words or or what happens. But okay, so people are calling this Lehman, and I think it's bigger than that. Actually, it's more systemic for China itself. It might not be a bigger global event, and we'll get into why that is. But uh, it, I think it's bigger and worse for China than Lehman was for the U.S. 70% of people's personal savings or household savings is in real estate. More second homes are sold than first homes, and more, the same amount of third homes are sold as first homes. So you can see how you know, people, that's how they save. They save by buying homes, and there's lots of people buying lots of multiple properties. Um, and that's how you get ghost cities. So <laughs> we've talked about this. This is kind of, uh, you know, people talked about it, and it was poo-pooed as, a rumor, a myth, anti-China about these ghost cities going up, but there were ghost cities or there are ghost cities, these large developments, large entire cities built for a million plus people waiting for somebody to move in and nobody moves in. All right. That's, that speaks to this whole idea uh, or this whole, it, it summarizes all of the Chinese economy, right? It's just a big credit bubble. It also speaks to the Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of people are like, oh, but what about the Belt and Road Initiative? They're going in and making friends with people and uh, funding these uh, ports and roads and infrastructure in these other countries. Central Asia is getting a road that's going to connect China with, with Europe. Okay. But it's just like these ghost cities. If you build it, they will come. Most likely not. Right, you, <laughs> capitalism works from demand first. First, you come first comes demand, then comes the infrastructure, then comes the build out. You can't just centrally plan these things to say we are going to build a one million person city. We're going to build a port that can handle hundreds of vessels every week in a place that doesn't need it. Right, it, it just. That is exactly how China is, to, to sum up the Chinese economy, is just overproduction, overcapacity, and they were hoping that demand would follow, right? And it really hasn't. So anyway, uh, what else do we have? So one, here's one of the differences with Lehman as well, okay? So China, you might have heard the term capitalism with Chinese characteristics or socialism with Chinese characteristics, you see, you see it both both ways. Um, this became very very popular. China became very very popular for Western academics and Western socialists to use as an example of the way communism can work, the way socialism can work. You know, they socialists are constantly looked saying, you know, oh that just wasn't the right version of communism. That's why it failed in Venezuela. That's why it failed in the Soviet Union. That's why it's, Cuba is such a disaster, because that's just not the right kind of communism. And then they looked at China, and China seems to be 
doing very, very well as a one-party communist system. And that became very popular with academics. One of the kind of symbols of this was the idea of Thucydides trap. And I did a whole episode on my other podcast, Bitcoin and Markets, episode number uh, 225 from six months ago or so, uh, debunking the Thucydides trap. Uh, that I, is an idea that was picked up very quickly by Western academics about a rising power versus a declining power and how China is rising and the U.S. is declining and how there's inevitable conflict there. And we are even seeing some trade wars and seeing some like conflict um, over the last few years. And so it seemed like the Thucydides trap was correct, but I debunked that and I say, no, this is China is not rising. It's just a big ass credit bubble, right? And it's going to, it's going to collapse. So anyway, but that, that popular was, that idea was very popular with academics and you can see why, because they're waiting for something to validate their political beliefs about communism and about socialism. So uh, how, do, how does this tie into the situation with Evergrande? Well, Evergrande is happening during what I call the second communist revolution in China. So if people are familiar with Marxism, uh, it, it's a process. You know, the communist revolution is a process. So first you have capitalism and capitalism creates wealth and creates capital and infrastructure and all of this stuff. Uh, it gets to a point where the income inequality is so great that the workers rebel and then the worker sees the means of production and you get a communist paradise. That is the process. Um, so communism does have room for capitalism or at least Marxism has room for capitalism. It, it's a requirement actually. And I think the Chinese saw that back in the seventies when they were deciding to open up. Uh, they said, well, look, we never had this capitalistic phase where we could build up this infrastructure to seize. We just seized it. We just seized everything. And that's why we had the great leap forward, the failures of the great leap forward where 60 million people, I think, or more than that, I don't know how many exactly died in China. It was a huge, probably the worst failure in the history of the world for killing of your own citizens was this great leap forward. And so they probably blamed it on like, hey, we didn't have this capitalistic phase to build up this capital to seize. Uh, so we need to do that now. So they reinstated, they opened up and they have this capitalism or socialism with Chinese characteristics. But now that capitalism has played itself out. And I, Xi Jinping and others now see this as a end of the capitalistic process, now back towards seizing the means of production. So I think we see this, this big crackdown on all of this stuff over there in China as part of this second communist revolution. Now, if you put Evergrande in that context, that's, that's what we're talking about here. It's different from Lehman. Lehman was a interconnected financial crisis, but not in a broader context of a second communist revolution. So th this is very scary for, for China and for Chinese people. I would, and the region, I mean, drowning people are very dangerous because they'll grab onto you and pull you under, right? So the, your neighbors, the neighbors of China 
I would be very worried about a flailing communist party. But uh, anyway, you see things like crackdown on fintech companies, uh, tech companies like Didi, which is the Chinese Uber IPOs, not only in China, but in on foreign exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange, the over trillion dollar education industry for like private tutors and private lessons, especially English and, and other things, private schools. Uh, it has been nationalized for the most part into nonprofit. So the, they changed all profit oriented education businesses into nonprofit. Uh, you see a crackdown on entertainment. So now kids cannot play more than three hours of video games every week. They're also cracking down on celebrities. They don't want feminine celebrities. If you think of K-pop and um, that has, you know, more feminine uh, boys or men, then they, that was becoming popular in China as well. And so they said, we don't want this feminist, feminine, feminine men as celebrities. So they're cracking down on that. Um, and of course, this all started with Hong Kong. They seized Hong Kong, got rid of the one country, two systems or whatever they called it. So they got rid of that, cracked down on, on democracy and freedom of speech in Hong Kong. And that was like the first step in all of these dominoes that are falling. And now that's, that puts Evergrande in the, at the end of this domino line. And a lot of people are saying that Evergrande was planned or that Evergrande was, uh, they're not stopping it because they want it to happen. And I don't think it was planned, but I think they could see it. And yeah, maybe they're not stopping it because they want to change. These big ideas to understand are malinvestment and misallocation. Malinvestment is just where you don't get your money back on your investment, right? You invested $1,000 and you lost money on, on the deal. Now, misallocation is where over a period of time, you, the, the, well, if it's an individual can misallocate as well, but we're talking about this on a, a country or economy wide scale uh, over time, money flows into sectors that it otherwise wouldn't have except for some sort of intervention. So the price signals are skewed and that creates a, uh, an incentive to invest in the wrong sectors, to build up these wrong sectors. And as more money goes there, then you have returns there, more money flows there because there's higher returns. And it's all driven off of faulty signals that were not part of the free market. And so that's what misallocation is. Um, and over the decades, you can, your whole entire economy can be shifted. The capital structure of your whole entire economy can be shifted. So that's, that's um, very troubling and very important to understand about this idea of the real estate bubble in China. I think what they are trying to do is the Chinese Communist Party, they want to change into a consumption-led economy. This gets into the middle income trap idea. So they are stuck in the middle income trap. And that is where poor countries start out as manufacturing, low, low skill, low paid manufacturing. But that slowly builds up capital in the country, infrastructure, wages grow, income grows, per capita GDP grows, and you become a middle income country. And then the trick is to somehow turn that, because you're no longer a low cost producer anymore, 
you're a middle-class producer, and you're trying to transition your economy into being a service-led economy, a consumption-led economy. And that is almost never has happened. Um, that's why it's called the middle income trap. Now, a lot of people thought China would be able to get out of that or to solve it, but right now it doesn't seem to be that way. The big thing is over decades of misallocation of this credit boom into property, they can't deflate it without collapsing. So they're stuck in this rigid uh, capital structure that puts money towards real estate. And the only way to like get rid of this to reallocate the capital is to let it collapse. So I don't think that there's going to be a bailout directly of these real estate investment companies. It's going to be very painful for the people. But uh, I think there's going to be bailouts on the second layer, which would be the banks. The banks are who are owed money by these big uh, real estate developers. And so I think they will get bailed out. There might even be consumer bailouts or you know household bailouts. We'll see how that goes. But I think these large companies are not going to get bailed out. Okay, what about contagion for the rest of the world? There, there, is, there are a few Western investment funds that, uh, or large entities that are trying to help and save this because the Chinese economy or Chinese government doesn't seem to be wanting to save Evergrande. So large companies like HSBC, UBS, and BlackRock are buying up this Evergrande debt at 20 cents, 25 cents on the dollar saying it's a good deal. So they're trying to save it. Uh, we'll see how successful they can be. But I do link to a story about that in the show notes for you guys. Um, I think they're ending up throwing good money after bad, uh, which could spread contagion, right? Who owns this debt? Well, BlackRock. <laughs> okay. Who has money there? Well, other large funds, uh, high net worth individuals, etc., And on and on. Who else is going to get screwed by Evergrande's default. Well, maybe pension funds, you know, that's how it spreads. Uh, but I do think that there's going to be less contagion internationally than what some people expect. Um, I think of this kind of like, okay, in 2008, nine, we had the great financial crisis. Then in 2010, 11, we had the European debt crisis. And I think this could be something similar to that because the European debt crisis was very centered in Europe. I mean, the whole global economy kind of slowed down, but the main crisis was focused in the European, the, the Eurozone. And so I think that's going to be similar. Most of the, the crisis is going to be contained within China with a global slowdown around that. Um, the U.S. is going to be fairly insulated along with other countries like France is one that comes to mind, but it's going to be a mixed bag. Uh, around the world. For example, Germany is much more exposed to international trade. Around 25% of their GDP comes from trade outside of the Eurozone, and uh, where France is only 10%, and the U.S. is only 10%. Uh, so th it's going to be a mixed bag of which countries which will be more hurt by a global slowdown, a decline in the amount of globalization and, and trade route uh, shortening. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a mixed bag. But I, I do expect it to be similar to the European debt crisis in 2010, 2011.
now what does this have to say about inflation? Because you guys know I'm, I'm pretty much the only deflationist in Bitcoin, maybe Jeff Booth, but we are for different reasons why we uh, are deflationists. And it's important to understand that supply chains are not money printing. Like problems with supply chains, price increases due to supply chain issues is not money printing. And when we talk about inflation, we're talking about money printing. We're talking about the supply of money. Has the supply of money gone up? Now, you can look at M2 and say, okay, it's quadrupled in the last you know, 10 years. But prices have not quadrupled. And I don't care what anecdotes you want to look at, what numbers you want to look at. Prices have not quadrupled like M2 has. It has gone up maybe 5 10% in some things. CPI is showing 5% year on year, but it is not quadrupled. So M2 is not a measure of money supply. If it were, prices would have quadrupled. We see gas prices going down over the decade. But right now they're just over $3 per gallon in the US. And back at the great financial crisis for the next few years after the great financial crisis, it was $4 a gallon. So prices have come down. You cannot rely on anecdotes and surveys. So people notice, we're hardwired to notice scarcity. We're hardwired to notice price increases. We're not hardwired to notice price decreases. So for every 10% that the price goes up, it's going to fall 10% as well. But we just don't notice the, the declines in prices. But if you look around, like I did this on the last episode of FedWatcher, if you look around at commodities and stuff, the trend is down since the great financial crisis. Uh, prices go up and prices come down. That's how it is. Uh, M2 is not money. It's not money supply. Supply chain issues will cause prices to go up, but that's not money printing. All right. Enough on that. So what does Evergrande have to do with effects on Bitcoin? Well, my big thing is that Bitcoin is a good investment in deflationary times and inflationary times. Everybody is so centered and focused on inflation of money printing that that is their whole thesis for Bitcoin is that there's going to be hyperinflation because of quantitative easing or whatever. That's not money printing and Bitcoin's still going up regardless. Bitcoin, if you look at like a uh, two-year moving average on the dollar versus Bitcoin, they go up together. They're positively correlated on a long enough time frame, And I think that will continue. I think the dollar will strengthen and so will Bitcoin. Why is that? Well, Bitcoin doesn't have counterparty risk. So in a credit-based system that we have now where uh, money is debt and most of your assets are someone else's liability, it's if there is collateral that, or if there's assets that are become impaired through uh, you know, a bank going insolvent or a company going insolvent or some sort of supply chain issues or Evergrande, if there is some sort of impairment in that asset, the price will crash. So most assets are someone else's liability, but Bitcoin is counterparty has no counterparty risk if you hold your own keys. This is the same argument with, with gold, except gold has inflation risk. You know, the, not only is there one to 2% new gold mined every year, which degrades, undermines the value of your holdings, but there is a possibility that they could 
uh, an asteroid could crash into the earth and have double the gold supply. Or maybe there's a big, rich, new mine discovered a deposit of gold, and it doubles the world's gold supply in a matter of a decade. You know, that is a risk where Bitcoin doesn't have that risk. So Bitcoin is, has less counterparty risk, less risk in general of being uh, debased. But yes, the, that is the reason I believe that Bitcoin will go up because it is counterparty, because of the lack of the counterparty risk. Um, and it's important to think about Bitcoin's investment thesis in a deflationary environment versus only ever thinking about inflation because we don't have a lot of inflation right now. All right. Um, let's talk about Tether real quick. So Tether is constantly being attacked by naysayers. And there's those Tether haters out there that say the only reason why Bitcoin is pumped is because of Tether. All right. Well, they came out several months ago and we reported on this, I believe on FedWatch. If not, I have written it about, I've written about it on my newsletters. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for my newsletter there. Um, but Tether came out with an audit, quote unquote audit, where they showed where their money is, what is backing Tether, because people are always saying that Tether's not backed one to one. Now, it came out in that audit that they had a sizable percentage of their assets in commercial paper. And that, that tweak or that piqued some interest because that would be a very huge amount of commercial paper activity for Tether. And all the American people, big guys in the American commercial paper market didn't know this Tether entity. And so they did say that they're trading through uh, proxies. But there's also a possibility that they were trading Chinese commercial paper. And that brings us into Evergrande and the huge credit bubble popping over there in China right now. Uh, Tether, it is possible that they are exposed to Chinese credit. Um, and Tether would have a higher risk during these types of times where there's a huge collapse in economies. So... This is the first time that I've really been, ooh, man, I've been a Tether supporter for years and years, but I think this might have something to it. I know they're very sharp guys, so if I saw this coming, they probably saw this coming in China and have diversified or at least maybe moved their commercial paper, sold that and bought other stuff in the West or something. But it's, um, it is a risk, and I think that does have it does increase uncertainty in the Bitcoin space and can negatively affect the price. Okay, before we go, I just want to share my screen one more time uh, with a chart because I've been talking about this for a little while now on my newsletters, specifically my member newsletter. Uh, but if you look at the cycle in 2019 and this cycle that started in 2020, there are some eerie similarities. So if we just take this off, um, we'll take this moving average off too real quick. So you can just see this pattern of breakout from the 2019 low, went all the way to 14,000, had a consolidation period, had a higher 
or sorry, a lower high, and then Corona crash. And then if you uh, fast forward to October of 2020, you see we broke out, we go race all the way up to 64,000. We roll over and we consolidate. Then we have a lower high, and now we're having a sell-off as if this were another Corona correction. I mean, the fractal nature of this pattern is eerie. It is very eerie. Uh, and if we just look at this very specific area here, the second lower highs at both these periods. So this is January of 2020 and now in August, September of 2021. And then I'll put in the moving average. This is the 50-week moving average. You can see it struggled with that 50-week moving average, popped up over top, and then crashed. And that's in uh, 2020. And then 2021, we have a consolidation period, popped up over the 50-week moving average, and now is diving back towards that 50-week moving average um, and possibly might go below it. But we'll have to see. I don't think there's going to be a repeat of March of 2020 and the Corona crash, but it is possible. I mean, there is a possibility that price crashes down back down to 30,000 again. Um, I don't see that happening right now. I think 40,000 is extremely strong uh, support and all throughout the upper thirties is strong support. And so if there is a sell-off, most likely it's going to stop there. Um, China has decoupled itself from Bitcoin. Uh, and that's a good thing for the Bitcoin price right now, uh, because as China struggles, as China struggles here, uh, it's going to have less of an effect on the Bitcoin price. So anyway, that's all I have for this episode, guys. That is it for this one, guys. Thank you for joining me. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. This is a listener-funded podcast. To find out more, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com. That is where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to the free weekly newsletter. Uh, That is the best free weekly newsletter in Bitcoin called The Fundamentals Report. And check out the Discord. We're building a nice community over there with lots of simultaneous topics and rooms going at the same time. So BitcoinandMarkets.com and you'll find all of that information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.